KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting Sustainability Now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. For information, visit SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. And thank you, SSRF, for supporting community radio, KSquid 90.7 FM. Them just off the rocks, floating out in the bay. Sea otters play in the cool ocean spray. The California gray whales play in there. Haven't got a care. Good evening, K-Squid listeners. It's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now a bi-weekly radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. My guest on today's show is Dr. James Estes, Emeritus Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UC Santa Cruz. Jim is co-principal investigator in the Tinker Estes Lab at UCSC and the U.S. Geological Survey. His group is interested in the ecology of coastal marine communities, particularly the influences of vertebrate consumers on benthic community structure. I'm sure he'll explain that to us. Most of their field research focuses on the sea otter populations around the northeastern Pacific Ocean. And the central theme of their studies are to better understand the suite of direct and indirect interactions between sea otters and other species in the nearshore environment. Estes is author of Serendipity, an ecologist's quest to understand nature, and he also appears in a film, a documentary film, The Serengeti Rules, which uh, was released in 2019, uh, played on PBS, and is about five unsung heroes of modern ecology, of which he is one. We'll talk about that as well. He's a Pew Fellow in Marine Conservation, a Fellow of the California Academy of Sciences, and a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Jim, welcome to Sustainability Now. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. I'm happy to be here. Um, so why don't we just start at the beginning? How did you get interested in marine ecology and sea otters? You know, it's uh, uh, my interest in, in those topics was completely fortuitous. Uh, I had no intention of being a marine biologist. I had no intention of studying marine mammals. I uh, was finishing up my master's degree at Washington State University, waiting to get drafted to go to Vietnam, flunked my draft physical for a whole suite of really peculiar reasons. Uh, As a consequence, I was pretty much on the street looking for something to do, and uh, one of my professors at Washington State happened to have been a consultant, a statistical consultant, with the atom- what was then the Atomic Energy Commission, now part of the Department of, of Energy. And they were looking for somebody to go out to Amchitka Island in the Aleutians and work on sea otters. And he thought I would be good for the job and asked me if I was interested. And I said, yeah, uh, that sounds fabulous. And that was sort of the beginning of it. I, it was just being at the right place at the right time. Uh, wasn't there a, a nuclear test at Amchitka in the early 60s? 
There was. Uh, it, it actually, there were three underground nuclear tests uh, done at Emchitka Island, and I was involved with the third and largest of those, which was called the Kanakin event. That actually happened in 1971. And um, so the, the the motivation for having people like me out there, and there were a, a bunch of us, mostly younger people, uh, working on different aspects of the environment, was to to do environmental assessment, environmental monitoring, and damage assessment from this underground nuclear detonation that was going on there. Uh, and the motivation for that really was that the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, really, really post World War II and then post Korean War, had gotten in a bunch of trouble in Alaska for not paying attention to the environment. And it was, it was really a, uh, this was the uh, uh, Project Chariot that was just a disaster for them. And so when this new project came up and they identified the Aleutians, they really felt that they had to pay a lot more attention to environmental studies and, and the sensitivities of potential environmental damage. And, and that's really what led to the whole thing. I have one more question about that because it's pretty pretty intriguing. Um, were these tests about trying to release natural gas, or about trying to dig new canals in the uh, uh, American Isthmus? So the early tests or the planned tests uh, were all about trying to to restructure the shape of the coastline and to create harbors where no harbors huh. occurred. Wow. And that's what Project Chariot was all about. Um, and the one that I was involved with was so secret that they didn't really tell us what they were planning to do with it. But <laughs> we think that it had something to do with some sort of defense system. That's all that we really uh -huh. ever knew. Mm -hmm. All that we knew mm -hmm. was that it was going to be the biggest test ever conducted. And there was a lot of uncertainty at the time uh, just because the science wasn't up to, to speed. There's a lot of uncertainty as to exactly what the magnitude of the detonation was going to be. So wow, there was a lot really? of worry about this thing. Yeah, I mean, it was mm -hmm. there was quite a bit of concern. It was not popular at all in Alaska. Yeah, well, I can I can imagine. Um, well, for listeners interested in marine biology and and the kind of work that you're doing, then what training and experience would qualify someone, and what kind of future is there in the field? Well, um, I think the for people doing, I mean, it, it's changed a lot in recent years, but uh, I think for the kinds of things that I do, which is basic and applied biological research, that uh, an advanced degree in, in biology, ecology, environmental sciences is the sort of thing that is necessary to prepare people for you know, for taking an active leadership or research role, um, uh, the, the the a lot of the the field now is kind of moving more into the human dimension, and so mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of people uh, re really turning more toward education. We're seeing people turn more toward policy and toward the social sciences. So that that's an interface that has grown tremendously since I entered the field. It didn't even exist when I was when I started. Now it's a really big deal. So um, I, I, I think the, the point I'm trying to make is that it's 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 a moving target to some degree. 
And mm-hmm. I think the people that are going to be successful, the next generation of people that are going to be successful, are the ones that recognize that and pay attention to what that target really is. Um, will there be opportunities? There always have been. And, uh, yes, uh, it's... I would say your marketability as an ecologist, which is what I call myself, which is what I was trained in as a graduate student, the marketability of a person like me is a lot less than a mark- the marketability of an engineer or a physician or a lot of other professions. So, uh, But there, there are probably well, many fewer of us being produced as well. So, uh, you know, it, it's a field where you have to be fairly aggressive and willing to make changes. You can't say, I want to be an ecologist and I want to move to um, Miami because that's where my sister lives and that's where I want to live. That's just not the way it is in this field. So you have to, you, you have to be of a, of a mind that you are going to take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves, I think. I mean, that's an interesting observation that that the uh, the main sort of area is is in disciplines that are not directly uh, related to marine biology, and yet uh, there's the need for a lot of research, right, on on ecosystems, on ecology, on species diversity. So, um, what's going on? Well, yeah, there's a lot of work. I mean, people basically get involved with this sort of thing in response to two different kinds of, of, of um, endeavors. One of them is basic science, basic research, mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. they have an idea and they obtain funding from some sort of basic research organization. Mm-hmm. Like in this country, it's the U.S. National Science Foundation. There are other groups that are to some degree fund basic research uh, and then there are a lot of organizations that fund applied research so for example uh, NASA funds research in, in, in this in this area because of, of their particular interest in earth systems and um, there, there are other organizations that, that that provide support for research that is more directed more applied in nature uh, and then there's a, a lot of, of sort of what I would call private sector opportunity. So industry uh, has a need for work to be done on what the potential impact of their activities or all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are a lot of people that, that work in that arena, too. Um, they may work on a military contract because the military is under a lot of pressure to understand more about noise in the ocean. So they will, you know, there's there's a lot of resource there for people to work on that particular problem, a fair amount anyway, and and, and on and on, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, are, so so the, the, sort of the, the, the motivation for support for people working on marine biological resources really varied from pure basic research to extremely applied research. Ah, okay. Um, well, just just to follow that up, and then I'll leave you alone about this, okay? And, and this is a, a sort of a loaded question, which is how much, how much impact do you think that the, the kind of research you do has on, on policy and its implementation? Oh, you know, um, at this <laughs> point in my life, 
if you'd asked me 30 years ago, I would probably have been much more optimistic about it and much more yeah, positive yeah. in my response than I am now. But, you know, I uh, less than I would like, let's put it that way. But then on the other hand, I think that the things that that we do, the things that I've done as a particular individual, when I look back at, at it all, I do think it's had some some impact, uh, uh, oftentimes in ways that were not anticipated at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we the, the, the philosophy in this area is that you need to know the fundamental science. You need to know biology if you're a biologist or if you're working in a system that includes living organisms and that's your concern. And so the more we learn about those things, the, the greater the impact. You know, you know, I mean, the more I think the impact of the work we're doing will have. Um, so, uh, but on the other hand, I think what really drives decisions are very, very much more commonly economic decisions, social decisions, sure. political decisions. I mean, those are the things that drive the way humans behave. Those are the things that drive the way government agencies spend money to a large degree. And and so, uh, I mean, that's the reality of it. Yeah, well, I mean, I ask that because, of course, the mantra is follow the science. And um, I guess following the science is a political decision as much as anything else is. Uh, we have to take a break, so uh, let me do that, and then we'll come back and talk about otters. You're listening to Sustainability Now on K-Squid. This is Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today on the show is Dr. James Estes, Emeritus Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCSC. Jim is probably best known for his research on southern sea otters. So why don't we talk about southern sea otters for the next, you know, 15 minutes or so. Maybe, Jim, you can just give us a a quick potted history of sea otter populations along the west coast and up into Alaska. I I imagine a lot of our listeners uh, have heard this one before, but I think it's always worth repeating. So Maybe you can start in the 19th century and go from there. Uh, so really about the mid-18th century, by about the mid-18th century, sea otters were, we, we believe that they were abundant across the entire Pacific Rim, uh, across a range that's more or less coincident with the distribution of kelp forests today. So from about northern Japan all the way across the North Pacific, down along the coast of North America to about central Baja, California. How many were there? Uh, half a million, million, who knows? There were lots. And they were, as best we can gather, more or less continuously distributed throughout that range. We don't believe there were any large areas that were unoccupied. Uh, for example, we know there were vast numbers of otters in San Francisco Bay just because they were observed there by some of the early travelers. Um, and then, uh, beginning in the 1740s, the Pacific Maritime Fur Trade began, and that happened with the Bering Expedition from Petropavlovsk over to the uh, eastern North Pacific Ocean, the discovery of North America and the discovery of these vast fur resources. And over the next 150 years, otters were pretty much hunted to the brink of extinction. You know, their numbers went from hundreds of thousands to millions down to probably less than a 1,000 animals, uh, maybe substantially less than a 1,000. And those few remaining animals were at a couple of small isolated colonies, maybe a dozen or so scattered across the range. 
Some of those colonies dwindled on to extinction. A few of them did not. They were protected in 1911, 1912, under the International Fur Seal Treaty, and the small populations began to grow. And uh, over the ensuing decades, they became larger and larger and larger. Um, coincidentally, in the in the late 1960s, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game began translocating otters, moving them from these places where they had recovered to large areas of habitat where they were, where they had become completely extinct, which was from pretty much about Prince William Sound all the way down to Central California. That whole area was unoccupied at that time. So there are colonies now in those areas that were established by way of translocation. The California sea otter population, which is probably the one that most of the listeners will be familiar with and will have seen individuals from, is uh, a remnant colony. It survived around in the area of Bixby Creek down in the Big Sur coastline. Uh, we know that it was a very small colony. It was discovered in the early 20s, 1920s, uh, late 1920s perhaps, and that popula- the population as it is now is an outgrowth from that surviving remnant. So that's, that's it in a sort of a large nutshell. What's the, the current population then? So the current population in California <laughs> is about 3,000 animals, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have not been involved with the population assessment for a few years, but I do pay attention to the results. And um, I, I think, you know, the, as, as wildlife population estimates go, you never know exactly how many animals there are. But in this particular case, the methods have been well-developed. I think we have a good sense of where they are and about how many there are. And they range now from about... Half Moon Bay in the north, south to about Santa Barbara, and as I said, about 3,000 animals. There's also a small colony at San Nicolas Island in the Channel Islands that was established by way of a relocation in the uh, uh, mid to late 1980s. So, so the average density is pretty low then, isn't it? I mean, you see, you see, yeah. you see pods of, of otters in particular places. Is that what they're called, pods? Or, or yeah, there's something pods. else. I mean, they they tend to be they they will rest in groups, but they do yeah. everything else uh, in isolation. So they're not uh-huh. a highly social uh-huh. species. Uh, they will rest in groups. In some parts of those range, their range, those groups can be huge. I've seen groups of over a thousand animals uh, in parts of Alaska. In California, uh-huh. it's more typical to see groups in the range of maybe ten to twenty, up to maybe as many as twenty-five or thirty in a few places. Um, overall, the density of the population here is quite a bit less than it is in places in Alaska where they're abundant. Go on. Southeast Sorry. Alaska, which is, a, which is a relocation site, there are probably over 35,000 otters in southeast Alaska now, and they were introduced mm. there in the late 1960s. So that population has grown to be three times as big, or an order of magnitude larger than the California population in just a few decades. Are there are there differences between the two populations, the California and then the the Alaskan? I mean, uh, you know, genetic differences uh, or, or anything there are like genetic that. Genetic differences, yeah. There are genetic differences uh, as there are between almost any isolated species these days. Uh-huh. It's not surprising that there are genetic differences because they've been isolated. We don't really have much of an understanding of any sort of functionally important genetic differences between the populations. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, all we can say is that they're distinguishable, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. So if you were to ask me, is, is there, do you have any reason to believe that the California sea otter is fundamentally different from the Alaska? Not really. Uh, I think they're pretty much the same creature. But but I seem to recall seeing some concerns about inbreeding in the California uh, population. Is that Am I wrong about that? There have been concerns, you know, but people worry about everything. And so, yeah, no, well, sure, but <laughs> inbreeding has become a very difficult topic, right? Uh, recently, in the last uh, decade or two, it's it's you know what what scientists have come to realize is that there's a lot of evidence for the detrimental effects of inbreeding. There also is a fair amount of evidence that populations that were historically of small size actually purge themselves of the deleterious alleles that inbreeding normally is responsible for. And so in those cases, the populations can do very well. So, so otter populations have grown pretty rapidly. There's no evidence of any genetically important deleterious impacts on this population. Uh, northern elephant seals is another great example. It basically was hunted to almost extinction. Virtually no genetic variation in elephant seals, and yet they have done extremely well. On the other hand, there are things like Florida panthers that had all kinds of apparent genetic problems. So it's complicated. I guess that's the only thing that I would say. Yeah. And uh, at this point, there's, I, I, I think there's, there's concern but no evidence. That's probably the best way I could put it. You, you said in, in that 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 some populations can purge disadvantageous alleles. How do how does how do they? I assume that's genes you're basically talking about. How do they do that? Right. Well, they become so small that they simply lose those alleles over time. And so, oh, oh, in cases of populations that have been small for a long period of time, the theory goes that those populations actually can purge a lot of the bad stuff. That They just lose it because they're small, and they lose it for the same reason that any small population loses genetic diversity, whereas a big population may have a lot of, of deleterious alleles spread through it, but because of all of the interbreeding, it doesn't have a significant negative effect. It's, a lot of it is guarded by heterozygosity, uh, you know, by the by the yeah, recessive yeah. Or, or the dominant allele that covers it up, and so when those populations get to be small, then those deleterious alleles become homozygous, and then they become really deleterious. And so those are the circumstances. That's sort of the the broad theory, and 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 I'm really not a geneticist, so I'm just recounting it to you as I more or less understand it. Uh, I think it's what I've said is is probably fairly correct and so for for our listeners let me let me repeat this back to you to see if i got if i've got this right because there were a lot of big words in there essentially in a small population any otter or any animal that's born with a with a major defect will die young and therefore you'll get fewer and fewer uh, individuals right with that particular issue problem and, and that's how these alleles disappear, these, these genes disappear from the population. Is that essentially how it works? Yeah, I, they, they, okay. they don't contribute to the population. And so populations that have historically been small tend to, again, as the theory goes, and I think some of the evidence goes, they, they tend to not be so subject to 
small population uh, genetic loss problems, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, whereas mm -hmm. areas where the populations were larger historically and then become small, they are much more at risk. I see. Well, you know, I was looking at the data on your uh, lab's website, and, and at, particularly at the sea otter death numbers, and, and I saw that they've more than doubled over the past 20 years. So I was wondering, what's killing them? Yeah, so we, we know a fair amount about that. And it, it's, um, there's a lot of nuance here. So what's killing them is disease. So, and, well, let me just say, first of all, that the only ones that we really know what's killing them are the ones that get found on the beach. Right, yeah. Probably yeah. half of the deaths are not recovered. They simply don't, they, we aren't, they aren't found. And so we already de facto have a biased sample of death uh -huh. in the populations because we know that a lot of the animals die in the ocean and we don't feel that, it's, that what we find on the beach is necessarily a representative sample of that. It may be, but it very well may not be as well. So for instance, um, if an animal were killed in a trap, which we know some of them are, get caught in a fishing trap or a pot of some sort and drowned, those animals very typically, very commonly, uh, drown, their lungs fill up with water, and when they're discarded back into the ocean, they sink. And if those animals sink, they are not found. They aren't found on the beach. And so we wouldn't see that source of mortality Whereas an animal that may have contracted a disease have had a period of being moribund, sick, weakened, they might crawl up on the beach, in fact, very likely would crawl up on the beach or come close to a place where they would wash ashore when they became so weakened that they couldn't manage in the open ocean anymore. And those would be ones that we would tend to find in larger numbers. Mm -hmm. So this is a problem with an animal like sea otters. You know, you don't get a good representative sample of death in the environment that they are living in. You're getting dead animals from a place that they don't live, which is the beach. The beach. Um, so that's well, what we see. And, well, and uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, well, here's a stupid question, which is uh, how do you know that the otters have died if you don't find their bodies? Uh, oh, that's easy, because we know how many are being born. And so we know what the population size ah, should okay. be. Okay. And the difference between what it should be and what it is has to be reproduction. Okay. Right? Got uh, it. I'm sorry, Got it has it. to be mortality. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we know that with a great deal of certainty. Uh, let me uh -huh. just say that, that that's not something we're guessing at. We have, we have very good information on that. That's um, interesting. And, and, so, and, and so based on the carcasses that are found on the beach, which it gives us the best profile of the causes of death. When a fresh carcass comes in, there are some veterinary pathologists that uh, locally here who are very talented people that can look at those things and make a, you know, a, a, a superb diagnosis of the cause of, de cause of death. Mm -hmm. Pro probably mm -hmm. the most, the most well-known and, and skillful of these people is, is Melissa Miller, who works for the Fish and Game Department right down the road there at the Long Marine Lab, and she does a lot of these necropsies. Uh -huh. veterinary, veterinary pathologist and you know they they can tell whether they died from disease or whether they died from a, a you know a ship strike or if they were shot or whatever and um, you know probably the most common causes of mortality are having to do with with uh, infectious disease 
uh, in, the, in this uh, uh, sample that washes up on the beach. Now, having said that, we are now of the mind, we, at least some of us that have been involved with this, that those are animals that are probably not necessarily dying because of exposure to disease so much, as be, but, but because they are living in, environment, in an environment where resources are limiting and thus they're much more vulnerable. They're weakened because of resource limitation and therefore they're more vulnerable to disease. So mm-hmm. we believe that that's one of the reasons why disease appears to be as prevalent in this population as it does, as it is. That, that said, there are things that are concerning. So, for example, many of your listeners will probably have, have heard of uh, toxoplasma. So toxoplasma has been a very, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a protozoal disease that is carried, it's vectored by cats, it gets into the ocean, and when otters become infected with uh, the toxoplasma, it goes into their brain, creates a encephalitis, and, and some of them, not all of them, will die from that. Um, and and so we think that that actually there there may be an elevated number of dead animals from things like toxoplasma and other infectious diseases because of the state of the population. That is, this population in Central California we think has gotten to be as big as it can get, and so that's what's uh, as dense as it could be. Let's put it that way. And so because of that, uh, we see a lot of mortality now. On top of all that, there has been a very clear trend in increasing numbers of shark bit otters. So the numbers of otters that are being attacked and killed by white sharks in particular along the central California coast has gone from almost none to many. It's now, I think, around 40% of all the carcasses that come in. I may have that number wrong, but it's a lot. And... um, so the people that have sort of followed me that have been working on this, uh, Tim Tinker primarily is one of my students. Tim really is of the mind now that this is the greatest, probably the greatest risk to the population recovery is the shark mortality. Last year, uh, Jim, our studio engineer, Emily Donham, was on the show to talk about kelp and sea urchins. And in the Serengeti Rules, the, the film about ecologists, you speak at length about otters and the Aleutians and their disappearance. And I was hoping you could repeat that story. Yeah, so um, the story really begins way back in the, in the 1970s where we, my colleagues and I contrasted islands where otters had recovered from the fur trade with islands where they had not recovered from the fur trade, but where they had historically been abundant. We knew that. And that contrast is what led to the discovery of the otter urchin kelp trophic cascade, which is to say the idea that otters limited sea urchins and thus prevented abundant sea urchins from overgrazing kelp forests. Um, Fast forward to about 1990 now, and in the early 90s, we began noticing that the islands were changing in ways that were unexpected. And some of those changes were, the two most fundamental of those changes were that the numbers of otters were all of a sudden in very rapid decline. This was unexpected. And that we found no dead bodies. 
we used to find lots of carcasses of animals that had starved during the winter and the dead bodies just disappeared. Coincident with that was the observation that all of a sudden killer whales were more commonly seen around these islands than they had been in the preceding several decades. Um, and so all of those data went together to, to propose that, or to, to let, led to the hypothesis, I guess I would call it at this point, that orcas had entered the system and were limiting otters. One of the predicted consequences of that process is that urchins should then again have become abundant and kelp should then again have become rare. So we looked and sure enough, that's what happened. Urchins became very abundant following this decline of the otters and kelps became very rare associated with that. So that story was published in Science Magazine in 1998, the various pieces of it. And that's what happened. Uh, that story then led to the question of why did it happen, where it did, when it did. And much of what I have spent the rest of my life working on has been an effort to untangle that question. So maybe you can tell us the why and how. So the why and the how are um, essentially this. You know, we, we're relatively sure that orcas had entered the system, had begun eating otters, had driven the otter populations down by preying on them, and that that had caused the coastal ecosystem to transition from being mm -hmm. a healthy kelp forest to a sea urchin barren. The question was, why did the orcas do that when they did? So this is something that uh, we spent a fair amount of time trying to, to get our heads around. Uh, it's work that was done in collaboration with um, several different people, Alan Springer at the University of Alaska and Terry Williams and Dan Doak, who were here at UC Santa Cruz. Dan at the time, Terry's still here. And uh, essentially what we came up, came up with was that we think that it was an epiphenomenon of sorts of post-World War II industrial whaling. And the story is simply this, that whales in the North Pacific Ocean were largely unexploited prior to World War II. At the end of World War II, there was this huge industrial shipping machine that had been created for the wartime purpose of, of winning World War II, but by the Axis powers, by Russia really and Japan primarily. And those countries were in very bad economic shape because of the war. And so they were encouraged to transition that technology, that wartime maritime, maritime technology into fishing and whaling to generate revenue, to get the economies of those nations running again. That resulted in huge large-scale fisheries and large-scale industrial whaling. And that large-scale industrial whaling drove the North Pacific great whales, large whales like blue whales and humpbacks and fin whales and sperm whales, drove those populations down over the course of about the, the subsequent 25 to 30 years. So that by the early 1960s, they were grossly overexploited. The consequence of that was that the predator that was feeding on these whales was the orca, but the orcas were never exploited. They were too small. They simply were not exploited. And so 
here you have now a big orca population that all of a sudden has had a huge part of its food resource base stripped out of its ecosystem. And the idea is that that's what caused these orcas to begin feeding on other species like seals and sea lions and fur seals and ultimately sea otters. That's the story. And that's been referred to as the megafauna collapse hypothesis. What, what would it take to, um, to confirm the hypothesis? Um, is there any kind of, of data or you know, evidence that would, would confirm it? It's, it's a difficult hypothesis to confirm. Uh, the, probably the most compelling evidence is modeling work that we have done. So uh -huh. we've gone uh -huh. back and asked the question, is this system sustainable uh, without big whales in it? And the answer is no, that there's not enough food there to maintain those orcas. Uh, so we've done modeling work. The, the other potential way that it could be confirmed would be to simply wait for the whales to recover. Uh, the prediction of the recovery of the great whales is that it ought to lead to a reversal of this. Huh. I'm oh. never going to see that in my lifetime. No. <laughs> so, but that, so that's for somebody else to, to deal with. To yeah. do as a dissertation project, yeah. Um, I, I also recall that the United States went after blue whales because of the oil, um, which was used as a lubricant in defense applications. You know, there, there was a very, a particular kind of oil that came from blue whales. Uh, do, do, do you know anything about that? No, not really. Okay. I know that the, that that there were there were two major products, or maybe three products, that came from whales. One was the lipids, the oil, and that sort of started to come out of vogue as as uh, 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 fossil fuels became yeah. more and more yeah. extensively used and developed. Yeah. Uh, the other was meat protein, right. and the other was baleen. So the baleen from these baleen whales was used in all sorts of industrial applications, yeah. mm -hmm. corsets, this and that and the other thing. So those are the main things that came from whales. Corsets after World War II. Um, well, recently we've been reading about, about new urchin barrens up uh, on the Sonoma and Mendocino coasts. Now, why is, how has that happened? What, what's that a result of? Well, first of all, I think it's important to um, to recognize that there have always been extensive urchin barrens on the Mendocino coast. And by always, I mean lots of that habitat has been deforested. The situation on the Mendocino coast over the last hundred years or more has been one in which there were no sea otters because they had not recovered into that part of California's coastal habitat. And, uh, but there were little patches of kelps here and there. It wasn't extensively kelp dominated, but there was a lot of kelp here and there in places. What's happened on that coast is that there has been uh, a couple of things that have, have occurred recently. One of them is a, um, an epidemic, a disease of sea stars, starfish. And one of the species of these sea stars, the sunflower star, which is a very large multi-armed star, it's an aggressive predator on sea urchins, has disappeared from the system. The sea stars feed on small urchins, the otters feed on large urchins, okay? 
So when the sea stars were present in the system, they were having enough of an impact on the urchins in places to maintain the kelp forests. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I think was going on. Mm -hmm. When this disease episode hit and took out all the predators, there was nothing to limit the urchins anywhere and they wiped out the remaining kelp forests. And I think that's largely what's going on. Now, um, there's been a lot of speculation about why this happened, where this disease came from, and was it purely disease that caused the problem, or was it ocean warming that may have caused the problem? And the answer is it's probably a mix of a lot of those things. The oceans have clearly warmed. That may be partly why disease has become more prevalent in the system, which it would, would explain why the sunflower stars have disappeared. But I don't think there's any question, but what the disappearance of kelp forests along the Mendocino coast is because of intense urchin grazing. And that's mostly because of the predators that otherwise would limit the urchins being lost from that system, all of them, not just the otters, but the sunflower stars. So I don't know if you know about this, but but I recently read that maybe it's the state that is now encouraging divers to harvest urchins in order, you know, in order to reduce their numbers. And that of course raises the question about, you know, about eating urchins, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I mean, urchins are a, a sort of a, a, a a high market commodity in Japan, particularly the gonads from red urchins. That's one species of urchins. Those urchins are only harvestable in places where there is enough kelp in the system to cause the gonads to become large enough to be economically viable. All right. So um, the idea of going out into these places that have become urchin barrens and harvesting urchins is, is not a good idea because they aren't going to have any value to them. So that's a problem. Uh, the the if, removal of the urchins would probably solve the kelp problem, but if you're going to try to do it by creating a market, there's got to be some value for that market, and there's just no value in these urchins that are in this kelp-free environment. So that's a big problem, and I don't think it's going to work at all for that yeah, reason. The 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 harvesting basically. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and now what about around the Monterey Bay? So the Monterey Bay is a somewhat different situation. Uh, it's similar in the sense that there have been outbreaks recently. And by recently, I mean uh, five to eight years in that general time range of, of um, pockets of urchins eating kelp. But they're very limited in their extent. They aren't as extensive as the North Coast where virtually all the kelp forests have been wiped out. So if you drive along Monterey Bay and uh, around uh, Point Pinos and on down south to Big Sur, you'll still see kelp forests most everywhere they were. There are little patches of places where they have disappeared because of urchin outbreaks. I think the reason that it's Apache phenomenon in Monterey Bay and not Apache phenomenon on the Mendocino coast is that otters are in this system. So otters are still having a very significant limiting effect on the urchins. Where the urchins are ex uh, expanding and where they have caused the kelps to be 
reduced or in just little places where apparently uh, the loss of the sunflower stars and maybe a temperature related phenomenon that, that may have caused some local uh, deterioration of the kelp forest itself are, in, are acting. But by and large, it's a very localized patchy phenomenon in our area, whereas on the North Coast, it's a very widespread extensive phenomenon. And I would say the difference is most easily explainable by the fact that there are no otters up there and there are lots of them down here. It's, it sounds like a candidate for transplanting otters, um, but we don't have to get into that. Um, what sort of other kinds of things are going on at the, in your lab and what sort of research are you doing these days? Um, well, I'm retired, uh, but I'm still, still remaining very active. Uh, from a research standpoint, uh, I'm involved with two or three major projects that are just coming to completion. Um, one of them is looking at the interplay between climate change and the effects of otters on kelp forests in the Aleutians and how these, these two processes interact with one another. That work was just published about four, four or five months ago. Um, the second project that I'm involved with is looking at the evolutionary genetics of seagrass and how the loss of otters has impacted that. And this is work that's being done largely, well, exclusively at the lead of a graduate student at the University of Victoria, Erin Foster. And Erin's, uh, I've been working with her on her project there, but it's very exciting stuff. She's finding that the loss of otters from that British Columbia coast has had big effects on the genetic structure of the plant populations because it has caused these plants to essentially shift from being sexually reproductive to asexually reproductive. It's a bit of a longer story, but that's the second part of the three things that I'm currently involved with. And then the third project that I'm involved with, that's quite exciting actually, is work I'm doing in collaboration with Beth Shapiro's lab here in our department at UC Santa Cruz, who's a, a, an ancient DNA specialist geneticist and uh, some folks at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, in which we have gotten samples of stellar sea cows, which were a kelp consumer that has since become extinct in the North Pacific. And we're kind of looking at the evolution uh, of the sea cow in the system based on this ancient DNA. And it's turning out to be very interesting, very, very interesting. You know, the technology, the methodology that the geneticists have come to is just mind blowing, really, what they can do. But, so that's stuff that is just kind of coming to fruition right now. Well, what, what in that last project, what, what is so interesting? Well, I'll, I'll just give you a couple of, of, uh, yeah. of, of tidbits. So these animals were referred to by Steller, who discovered them in the mid 1700s as bark animals. And so one of the things that we've seen in the genetics is a change in the genetic structure that led to, pretty clearly led to a change in the integument of the animals. Uh, another dimension that is really interesting about it is the evolution of large body size and the accumulation of blubber as an energy resource and as a means of, of adaptation against cold and uh, the geneticists can see the evolution of change that they know is linked to 
process of lipid accumulation in mammals. Uh, the third part of it that's fascinating is that you can actually take this historical genetic information and compute how large historical populations were based on those data. It seems fairly amazing, but people are doing it all the time. And this is work that Beth and her lab have really pioneered a lot of the, the, the paleo population reconstructions. And it's simply based on measures of, of uh, mutation rate and genetic variation. And that is gonna be a function of population size. So we can look back and estimate how large the sea cow population was over say the last half million years. Uh, and, and that's providing really amazing insights into things that were heretofore completely invisible. I, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say this, but I know that Beth Shapiro has been interested in, in the past in trying to revive extinct species uh, using DNA and, and I guess uh, current species. I, you know, I can't, I can't think of the right terms, but I don't imagine she's thinking about the stellar sea cow as a candidate for that. You know, imagine she's thinking about it. I can't imagine she's thinking very seriously about it. Yeah, you know, everybody's yeah. thinking about these things. Yeah, I know. The truth is that uh, at this point, uh, the ability to create a, a completely extinct species de novo is way outside the realm of what anyone can do. The kinds of things that they're able to do now is actually take closely related species and genetically engineer them based on these ancient DNA signatures uh -huh. uh, to make them a little more like the things that were extinct. But the idea of, Beth published a book called How to Clone a Mammoth. Right, yeah. You read that book, uh, it, it's not like you can just go in the lab and make a mammoth. Okay? Sure, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Beth would have to be the one to comment on this, but I would be stunned if she said that she thought that was on the horizon of something that would happen in her lifetime. I, I do remember, um, perhaps it was a talk she gave about doing that kind of genetic work to recreate the passenger pigeon or, or something yes. close to the passenger pigeon. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think I've heard any more about that, whether that was, you know, made any was successful or not. Well, it's moving forward, but yeah. the thing about the passenger pigeon is that there is a very closely related extant species, and that's the bantail pigeon here in Western US. So that was the bantail pigeon is not that different from a passenger pigeon. Oh, yeah. So they know what the genetic structure of the passenger pigeon was. They know what the genetics of the bantail looks like. So the idea of potentially being able to make something more like an old passenger, an extinct passenger pigeon, is, at least as I understand it, way more within the realm of, of, of our reach than something that is so distantly related from any other living yeah. species like a sea cow. Yeah, well, we strayed a bit from the, the focus yeah. of the show. Um, so uh, we're coming to the end here. I, and so I wanted to ask you the, the, whether, well, I don't know if any kids listen to this show. Uh, in fact, I have no idea who does listen to the show, but uh, maybe what do they need to do if they want to become marine mammal experts? And are there places where they could volunteer and learn about them? So I think um, if someone is interested in working on marine mammals, the best thing to do 
is to is to start to become involved. If they're local people, the major center of activity here is UC Santa Cruz, and there are programs. There are two or three people who have active marine mammal programs going on here. Uh, they have students that become involved in their program from the university. They have high school students that occasionally come in and work. Uh, I had high school students that worked in my lab from time to time. Um, the best thing that, uh, that, that a, a uh, sort of a, a hopeful new young person could do that wants to work in this field is to, is to reach out to other people that are doing it and become involved in their activities. To me, that's the best thing that they could do. Um, as far as training is concerned, the, the, um, you know, they, they probably, it depends on the level at which they would want to work, but if they want to work at the forefront of research, then they need to think that they're gonna go through and get a doctorate in biology of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what they need in the way of a credential uh, and training to, to move forward in that, in that region. But that's got to start someplace. And the place that that should start is in high school, as an undergraduate, becoming involved with people that are doing what they're interested in at the places that they are students. Um, th there are other programs where students can do this. So there's this... Uh, there's an NSF has a program where students can actually go to other labs for the summer and get training in different areas that they're interested in. So um, I, I think that uh, the, that's the way forward. It's not going to fall out of the sky into their laps. And so anybody that wants to move forward in these areas is going to have to you know, pay a little bit of attention to what's on the horizon out there and go for it. You know? Some initiative. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, listen, we're, um, we're out of time. And I want to thank you, Jim, for, for very much for being on Sustainability Now. My pleasure, Ronnie. Nice to see you. Uh, and and uh, always happy to do it. And I will, uh, I will post links to various publications and resources for listeners who might want to learn more about, about otters and about Jim's research. So thanks very much and good night.